Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's um, <clears throat> Sunday morning, late morning. And uh, a very, I'm going to call today a coincident podcast, I guess. <clears throat> today's talk, as you'll see, today's uh, talk is being sponsored by the by Nathan and Beth Adler, my cousins, um, in honor of Beth's parents. They're going to have the 70th uh, wedding anniversary. That's Shivim, 70. <laughs> right. They put the, old, the divorce lawyers out of business. Uh, Julie and Herschel. Uh, got married in '52, and uh, that's a you know that's a big celebration. Uh, <clears throat> Judy needs a refuel shilling. Well, in fact, she'll settle for three quarters of a refuel also. And uh, anyway, so very happy to do that. And family, uh, I'm not going to go and wax <clears throat> autobiographical. I wouldn't be here if not for for Judy. But I'm not going to go into the family history. Instead, <clears throat> let me. Excuse me. Let me talk about um, a series of coincidences. Um, how should I approach this? Last week, two Saturdays ago, I was down with the corona. I was at shells and all that. It wasn't too bad, but anyway, I was stuck at home and uh, <clears throat> with all day. And so I pulled out different things to read, you know, on Shabbos. I'm talking about on Shabbos. Mm, it's so much nice, whatever. But... I pulled out um, from my library the Gedolim book. There's a book um, published by Magnus Press, which is uh, a couple years ago, um, by uh, Benny Brown and uh, Nissen Leon. And uh, it's a bunch of academic biographies of Gedolim. That's why they call it Gedolim, because it's an academic study of the Haredi world, I guess you'd say. And it's very interesting. Um, and again, these are... <coughs> Uh, historians came out in 2017 2017 these are historians who um what do you call it who uh you know like in hebrew you and places like that who each one did <coughs> one of the gedolim i guess you'd say the last century or two looking at the haredi world no it's not rough cooking that sort of thing i would estimate there's about 50 biographies here 30 40 50 biographies here <coughs> and um What's interesting is they try to be academic about it. So in other words, on the one hand, you know, you avoid this extreme, you avoid that extreme. Um, they're not uh, hagiographies. On the other hand, they're not hatchet jobs either. Okay? And they're trying to be in the middle. <clears throat> they're not hagiographies, not hatchet, hatchet jobs either. Now, um, which is just interesting. Okay? Now, <clears throat> I haven't read the whole thing. I read this one, this one, this one over the years. But since I was alone on Shabbos, and I wasn't doing the regular things, so I just pulled it out, and for, don't ask me why, I happened to uh, read the part about the Belzerov, Rabaran, who died in 1957, the one who was in the war. Belzerov happens to be that my Shulwama rabbi, is called Rabbi Hertzberg, Shul, the founder of Rabbi Hertzberg, was a Belzer Chassid. The people are not Belzer Chassidim, and they certainly are today, 
Now if they got somebody like me. But nevertheless, the shul is formerly was a Belzer place, so we follow the Belzer Luach. Get it? There are no Belzer Hasidim in Shul, but they follow the Belzer Luach, and they send some money to Belz. <coughs> and that's what it boils down to, which is fine. And so I always have near me this Belzer Luach that they send every year, which is a fat book with all kind of details in it and so forth, more than you need to know. And shine. And don't ask me, <coughs> excuse me, don't ask me why, I don't know why, but I read this thing, I read this bio of the Bells of Rob, which was, you know, interesting in its way. Um, and I don't intend to give a full biography of the Bells of Rob, now Rabarn, because uh, that's too complex to do. But I'm just sharing with you what I experienced the last week. And then, having read that, I recovered from the COVID. I was in Shul yesterday on Shabbos. And by Mincha, or whenever it was, I happened to open the Belzer Luach, I don't know why, and I was looking, maybe I was looking for, you know, um, uh, what they have for the coming week, and there are two things that struck me. One is uh, that they say today on Sunday is a bad day to get married, it's, it's bad luck, I don't know why, I'm going to Hassan today, I hope it's not true, something from Sefer Hasidim, I do not know why. And secondly, then on Tuesday, there's no Tachlan. The reason no Tachlan is, it's the rescue of the Belzer Rebbe from the Holocaust, from the Shoah. I assume it means in 1944, that's how we get out and escape to Eretz Israel, to Palestine. And I remember from a youth that Rabbi Herzog, you know, let's put it this way. If you go by every day in the Belzer look where you say you skip Tachlan, you end up with, uh, you know, more bald and with hair, you know. Uh, and I know there are people in Shul that would like that, but that's not who I am. And so most of these, uh, you know, Hasidic days, we say Tachnan anyway, but there's a few, and I remember from a youth that this was a big one for my predecessor, Rabbi Hertzberg, so that one you honor to the day, so Tuesday is no Tachnan, because it's the day of the rescue of the Bells of Rebbe, so I said, isn't that a son of a gun? Last week I happened to just read this ac- academic bio by some guy named Ido Harari, I have no idea who he is, obviously an Israeli historian, who did his PhD thesis on, on the Bells of <coughs> and um and then I'm reading this, you know, it happens to be the, the uh, and, and indeed, when I read it last week, so I pulled out the good old art scroll that many people have called Rescuing the Bells of Rebbe. You know, the art scroll put that years ago. Obviously, it must be from the Hebrew. You know, where Guy Yosef Israel, I don't know the insider guys over here, but the bottom line is, you know, they made a fat book with hundreds and hundreds of pages, uh, about 500 pages. With every detail of the, as they called it, the rescue of the Bells of Rebbe. The Hasidim all got killed, but the Rebbe survived. And uh, that's that's what happens over there. And um, that's what it was. So I said, look at it, isn't that interesting? <clears throat> and it so happened that um, I spoke about a Shalashabbos, which gave me an idea what to talk about now. And, you know, once you start talking, you think of different things. And then. Meanwhile, when I sat down this morning to prepare my talk for this coming Saturday night, because in the winter, uh, I do uh, a lecture series, uh, which we deliver in Shomer Muna every Motzei Shabbos, on modern Israeli history, modern Jewish history, so this year, and we cover four years at a pop. So this year we're doing 1988 to 1992, and it so happens, you know, I skipped a week or whatever, but it so happens this coming week I'm supposed to give a talk on the state of Israel and the Jewish religion, which is a topic I always deal with every year, um, chronologically. The state of Israel on the one hand and the Jewish religion on the other, because obviously they're not identical. Um, 
And when I started writing this up, so this whole story with the bells and rubber all popped in my head. And I said, anyway, uh, for Judy and Herschel, whose anniversary is going to be soon, they're longtime members of Hertzberg Show. They were actually related in some distant way to Rabbi Hertzberg. So they have shaykhs to everything I'm talking about. And it all gelled together in my mind. I said, this is what I'll talk about today because of something unusual. So let me begin. Um, the story of the Belzerov and World War II is a very complicated one. That's why it's 500 pages in the art school. Um, the bottom line is that the Belzerov and his whole family all got killed. He didn't. He didn't. He and his brother. But uh, he, his family was all killed. No kids survived and all that. The Germans killed everybody. And same thing happened to his brother, Mordechai. So the two of them physically survived the war. How'd they do that? That's 500 pages. Um, meaning, it's a whole complicated story. It's also true, by the way, Derek Haga, part of the coincidence, because I'm not a Hasid, you know, and I usually wouldn't do a biography of Hasidic Rebbe, because if you don't stick to all the hagiography, then they, they freak out. Um, but this is a special case, you'll see in a second. And um, a couple years ago, I did one of my trips to Israel that I do from time to time. Hadn't been for the corona, I would have organized this year. It was me, I think, and Rabbi Marwick jointly did a trip with a group. And um, thanks to my good friend Sam Finkel, he organized that we did a tour uh, among other Jewish sites of Tel Aviv. You'll ask me a question, what's there to see from Tel Aviv? You're wrong. Not all of Tel Aviv is a, is, is a secular. Um, that's good for the point. It's, it's, it, there are aspects of Tel Aviv people just don't know about have to do with from things, especially in part of history. So one of the places we ended up going was the home of the Belzerov when he escaped from Hitler and came to Israel. It's famous that he moved to Tel Aviv and not Yerushalayim. Okay? He stopped in Jerusalem, but he ended up being in Tel Aviv, um, which is just interesting. And the reason was because after the Holocaust, when he saw three, he said, I don't want to look at no Goyim. I want to see no churches, no nothing. I'd rather be in a city that wasn't from, but it's all Yidden, than Yerushalayim which may be holier in some respects, with full of churches and mosques and all those other business. I've had it with the Goyim, you know. That's what, Now you can understand. It was 1944, 45, and the Holocaust and so forth. You know, it's an understandable business. And so he lived on Rakova Chad Ha'am, which is funny. And that house is still preserved today. And the long and the short of it is our tour guide is connected with them and took us there. And so you got to see all that kind of stuff. Okay. Now, um... As I said before, he survived the war in crazy ways because in order to make it through World War II, and I have spoken about this on other occasions, uh, you had to either have Ruch HaKodesh or you had to be unbelievably lucky or I don't know what because the borders changed and the conditions changed. Uh, I had this in my own family. My mother's brother, who eventually perished, uh, uh, moved from A to B and B to A and C to B until the Germans finally got him in late 44. So, for example, my mother's from Slovakia. If you know how it worked in Slovakia, uh, it has to do with the fact that was the German army physically there. I've spoken about this a number of times. In World War II, wherever the German army physically was occupying it, for example, Poland, Eastern Europe, and, the, you know, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, all the rest of it, the Jews were toast. 
Because the Germans went very thoroughly, as we all know, and they killed everybody. Very few people survived. My father, one of very few people survived from Lithuania. Very few. Okay? On the other hand, those countries that were allied to Hitler, in which there was a bunch. There was Slovakia, there was Hungary, there was Romania, there was Bulgaria. There were these countries who, who were honestly and genuinely allied to Hitler. So there, it wasn't as bad even, there was plenty bad. But it's, like I said before, with hindsight, it's twenty twenty. At that time, you didn't know. So, for example, let's say you lived in Romania. Well, if you're talking about the northern, uh, I guess, eastern part of Romania, which they occupied in forty one, the Romanians did an unbelievable shrita there. Unbelievable. It killed in horrible ways, even shocked the Germans. On the other hand, if you're in central or southern Romania, for various reasons I won't even get into now, the Germans never killed him. I mean, the Romanians never killed him. That was the place to be in World War II. Let's say, for example, Bucharest. You know, it wasn't fun, and it was anti-Semitism, etc., but if we're going by the Shoah calculus, which means, did they kill him? Did they send him to, to Auschwitz? Did they shoot him? If they didn't, then it's good. You know, if you go like that, right? Even though it was a terrible time. So Romania was the place to be. Uh, Hungary was good until, uh, I think, February or March of 44. Until then, it was good. Again, it wasn't good, but it was good. Um, Slovakia is, is complicated. In 42, they took away two-thirds and sent them to Auschwitz and Treblinka. But then, the the last third, including my mother, was saved by the Weissmandel business until late 44. See, see how complicated it is? You had to know. So my mother's brother, for example, was in Slovakia until they started rounding people up. Then he went to Romania. Uh, I'm sorry, went to Hungary. Uh, in Hungary, he was safe until February of 44, I think, March. Then he ran back to Slovakia, which by that time, if you're in the last third, was safe until September of 44. And then it wasn't safe. And then the only place safe was Romania. But by that time, Romania had been occupied by the Soviet army. So if I've confused you, that's my point. If I've confused you, how is somebody supposed to know this? So whoever had to be lucky was lucky. So when it comes to Belzareb and the Belzarov, they call him Belzarov. Um, so he was in Bels, and then he moved back and forth this place and that place to various uh, ghettos under the Germans in Galicia. The Germans occupied Galicia with the German army. But eventually he was able to sneak out in a certain way to Hungary, which was in, in 43, I think, end of 42, early 43. Uh, which in that year was quote-unquote safe. So he was in Budapest. Compared to everywhere else, it was safe. But he and his brother then wanted to get out of there and go to Israel, which they did do legally. So the Holocaust is so interesting if you know all these legal and political changes. How did he get to Israel in 43, 44, I guess? Um, the Aguda tried to help him. But the Aguda did not have certificates. You see, at that time, it was very limited the amount of Jews that were allowed in under the British. So every year they had so and so many thousands, not so many. I think 15,000, if I remember correctly. See, each one of these tickets, certificates, was a lifesaver if you got one during the Holocaust, obviously. You get it? And so he wanted to get one for him and his brother because their families were already killed by the Germans. And... um. The Agoda couldn't help him because the Agoda simply didn't have the certificates. And the reason is because in the 
20s, 30s, and 40s. I assume many of you know this. Maybe you don't. Um, the immigration certificate system was run by the Zionists, by the Jewish agency, together with the British. Um, I mean, they used to quarrel over the numbers, but that's the way it went. And if you wanted to make Aliyah, you had to do so through the Jewish agency, through the Zionists. You had to get a certificate from them that allowed you to legally enter Israel, or you didn't. And um, the Zionists ran it on the basis of party percentages. So whichever party was a bigger party within Zionism, like Ben-Gurion's Mapai Party or something like that, they got uh, the largest number of certificates available that year. If you were the second place party, you got a second. So if it was 100 seats available, I'm just making this up. Let's say 1,000 seats available, just as pretend 1,000 seats. So if you're in Mapai, you probably get three, 400 seats. I don't know, something like that. If you're in Mapam, you get another 200. If you're the general Zionist, you get like 100. If you're the Mizrahi, you get, I don't know, 100. You know, I'm giving you rough numbers. If you're good at just to, to say that they that they didn't keep their good out, they gave them like uh, 10, 20, 30, 40. A very small number. And they were all used up. And so the Bells Rebbe couldn't do that. But um, the Mizrahi movement had a couple of tickets available, tickets available, and maybe it was even the, the, the main Zionist movement, and they were successfully lobbied by Belzer Hasidim, and, and the two of them got, the Belzer Rebbe and his brother, uh, got two tickets to leave legally in early 44, just before the Germans came to go to Palestine. As a matter of fact, they got in under a special clause they're really supposed to be so and so many tickets for the Mapai, so and so many tickets for the Mapam, so and so many tickets for the Mizrahi, so and so many tickets for this, that, and the other. Uh, but there was a special, this is funny what I'm going to tell you. There was a special category. If you were a uh, Sioni Vatik, if you were a prominent figure in the Zionist movement, you know, like a big Zionist leader, they had a special category for them. They could get in, you know, outside the normal quotas. So in other words, they had a few t- tickets to play with, and they gave two of these to the Belzer and his brother to, as as veteran Zionists, even though of course they weren't. Quite the opposite. And that's what happened. So they took a train, it's totally legally, from Budapest. I think they went to Chase to. Uh, it was all legal, you know. They got a real uh, ticket, and so they, even though it's the middle of World War Two, it, it boggles the mind. They took a train from Budapest to Chase to Romania, and then from Romania down to Turkey. And in Turkey, they took a train all across Turkey, uh, which is in Asia, of course, to um, Syria. And then they took a train from down Syria, down to Haifa. You know what I mean? They didn't, know, they didn't go by ship. Okay? So it's quite a story. And that's how they survived the war. In the Jewish history profession, uh, in the last 20 years or so, there had been a big controversy about this. Because there was a, a big Chiloni historian, Mendel Picars, who always had a chip on his shoulder. I would say he was anti from even though he was a very interesting kind of historian. He wrote on the Tzbimates Micha the Hasidut. He, he's an interesting guy. And um, he is from uh, the Holocaust generation, and he hated the Rebbes. Um, basically, in the thesis, they could have saved others, but they only saved themselves after Shita. And the Bells of Rebbe's brother who's the father of the current Belzareba, you know, made a speech before they left 
Budapest in February 44, because the Hungarian Jews said, don't leave us. They said, don't worry, we're going, but you have nothing to worry about. We may even come back and visit you. And anyway, Hungary is not going to be hit by the Holocaust. Because the Hungarian Jews are from or something like that, it's not going to happen here. And then he left, and a month later, Hitler showed up and killed half the Hungarian Jews. So here comes Picard, say, see, you know, this has created a whole cottage industry um, in the history profession between the uh, defenders of the Belzereb and the condemners of Belzereb, and then it gets in the bigger picture, you know, the Satmreb escaped, and this, and, you know, getting this whole business, okay? But I'm not interested in that. <clears throat> not today. And because the Belzer Hasim doesn't mean anything to them. They just, these secular guys don't understand how the Hasim operate. The mindset's a different thing. Uh, and my, so I know that the Belzer came to to Israel and he said, I want to move to Tel He stopped in the Yerushalayim, then he ended up in Tel Aviv, as I recall. Because of what I say, he said, I just want to be an old Jewish city. And I know they're not from and all the rest of it, but it doesn't matter to me. And anyway, we can, and you have to understand, the Belzerab, you know, didn't eat during the week. I mean, was, he lived the life of a ascetic, you know, a chassid in the old sense of, uh, of precious from Achille Shti and all this kind of stuff. He lived that kind of, you know, he was uh, davening all the time and things like that, you know. Super duper from, obviously. You know, a different, different Madrega. And uh, that's how he lived from the time he came to Israel in 44 until he died in 57. So 13 years he was in Israel. Uh, and what's famous or notorious is that he wasn't so anti-Israel, it was anti-Zionist. So he, uh, the Satan were all angry at him for this because he couldn't criticize him. He was a tzaddik, he said, oh, he lived life, as they say, of extreme precious. On the other hand, he said he should vote for the Agoda, you know, in the elections and all the rest of it. And that was like treason from the notorious character point of view, as, as you understand. But on the other hand, how are you going to criticize him because he's a tzaddik? And, you know, so the... The politics are, are interesting. And all these ideas are swirling in my mind. And meanwhile, I remembered that uh, Arthur Hertzberg, who was Rabbi Hertzberg's son, became a conservative rabbi and a shikle historian, wrote an autobiography a number of years ago. He's already gone. And um, a lot of these conservative rabbis this type, you know, they're conservative, but they still say Hasidic. It's weird, you know. They still kept their Hasidic uh, connections even if they're conservative. And that's all schmooze by itself. But anyway, um, and I remembered he had something about the uh, meeting the Belzerov right after the war. And I got from Nathan and Beth, they had to copy the book. I didn't have the book. And um, I found that he, so he, uh, Arthur Hertzberg visited Israel as a correspondent um, in 1950. So this is not long afterwards. And he got in to see the Belzerov, who always acted very strange. You know, the Rebbe's you don't ask no questions for. He was always washing the tails of a dime. And he, was, he, he really wasn't a different oilum. I mean, I, I don't mean that in a, in, in a weird way. I'm, I'm saying that in a, in a respectful way. You know, he marched to, to a spiritual drummer. And he said that, you know, he, that Arthur said something along the lines about the six million or whatever. And basically the Rebbe... Uh, indicated that, you know, the six million are, let's put it this way, how do you relate to the Holocaust? Because mind you, he lost his whole family and he married after war, but he had many kids. Uh, so he died like that. And basically, um, the six million are in a, a separate madriga. There's a unique event in Jewish history. He doesn't even say Kaddish for them. Right? He doesn't say Kaddish for them. 
and you know, for his own family even, because the six million are kedoshim of a different madrega. This is an interesting way of looking at things. Now again, it's not for you and me. A rabbi marches to his own drummer, you know. Uh, but there's a famous question always in Jewish history. I talked about it in Shul yesterday. Do you say Kaddish for martyrs? Because the idea of Kaddish is you want to get the person into heaven. On the other hand, if you died Al-Kiddush Hashem, you got an instant ticket into heaven. This is not a new question. This is a question back in the Crusades, whether you should say Kaddish for the people who perished in the Crusades. You know, the time of Rashi, they were talking about this question. And by Chmelnitsky, Tachvatat, same thing. Tens of thousands of Jews were killed literally Al-Kiddush Hashem. When I say literally Al-Kiddush Hashem, in the, in the classic mode, I'm talking about like in, in, um, in the Crusades and the Cossacks, classic mode, they could have saved themselves by converting. I'm not sure if you know this or not. In 1096 and all that, those who were willing to convert could save their lives. And in the time of Chmelnitsky, those who were willing to convert could save their lives. And many did. Many did. On the other hand, many, many, many did not. So that's a classic Kiddush Hashem. The reason I say classic Kiddush Hashem, Hitler is a different category. If I wanted to be picky about it, and there were some, uh, what's the right word? There were some uh, halachically sensitive uh, types who, not incorrectly, you know, from a technical perspective, you say, well, maybe Hitler wasn't the, the Kiddush Hashem uh, because it's not like they had a choice. As we all know, Hitler was a racial. See, even if you were Jewish and had converted, Hitler still killed you because you were Jewish, born Jewish. So it's not like a religious thing. You understand that Talmudic law doesn't know of a racial anti-Semitism. You never had this in history. A racial, you know, you could maybe tie to Haman was like that. I don't think, you know, maybe. But that's it. All the other times in history, whenever they went at the Jews, it was religious and the Jews could escape out of it by changing religion. The Shoah was something unusual in that regard. But even after having made that point, and there is what to talk about, you know, if I were giving a shear, I would discuss this more seriously. Um, but having said that, everybody feels in the Kishkas that the six of were Kedoshim. That's how we talk today. That's certainly what the Bells of Rebel was saying. He says, Kedoshim, notice it's beyond Kedoshim. Get it? It's beyond Kedoshim. That's what Arthur Hershey writes in the book. And speaking of coincidences, Alan Abraham, it's my show, just sent me a photo of, uh, from 19, of the Kotel uh, in 1968, which was the Kotel was brand new. Remember after the 67 war? And there's Arthur Hertzberg, you know, by, by, by Tishabov. I think he's sitting next to Rabbi Ruderman, if I could tell him a picture of him. Maybe I'm wrong. It's such a weird <clears throat> coincidence, all these things that happened to me today. Now, um, the interesting part <clears throat> of all this, I mean, every, all this is interesting. And by the way, there are many stories. I'm not going to go into it. I remember Israel almost got into a war in the 1950s because of the Belzerov. It's a funny story. Maybe I've told, I don't know. When I was younger, I used to go to the library uh, when I was much younger and uh, when I lived in the old neighborhood. And um, I, I don't know why, but I always draw, I used to read these books that were written like in the 50s and early 60s, which were always on the library shelves. 
by people that were kind of like anti-Israel, who were members of the United Nations forces located in the Middle East, peacekeeping groups in the Middle East, and things like this. Um, you probably don't know what I'm talking about, but prior to the 67 war, there was a system of the, the mixed armistice commissions. When Israel had the war in 48-49, and they finally ended the war with the armistice agreements at Rhodes, they were signed by all parties. So what it said is they're going to be the Israeli side of the border and the Arab side of the border. Uh, and neither one should cross the other. And if there are any questions about it, there'll be the UN forces are there in the, supposed to be in the middle and poskin every case whether a crime was committed or not. So, for example, if an Arab crossed into Israel, which happened every day since 1949, most of you don't know this, but every day, multiple times, they were crossing over into the borders and killing Jews and stuff like that. Uh, what's his name? Benny Morris has a book about this somewhere. I forget what. Not the one you think about. It's the other one. It's the. Uh, it's about um, the Israeli uh, current security uh, from 48 to 56, I remember, something like that. Very detailed. And so every day they were crossing over. Um, and there were always killings going on. Uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar. They went to Kfar Chabad, some guy, and just shot up a bunch of kids, for example, in 1956. He just crossed the border and did it. So notice they didn't have the wall that Israel has built now. Not that the wall is perfect, but at least it's better than it was before. Ben-Gurion didn't want a wall for certain reasons, but, you know, so it was a crazy situation. And if Israel says, oh, you crossed over and killed us, and the Arabs said, oh, we didn't. So there's a, a mixed armistice commission, which means there's a group of three, one Israeli officer, one Jordanian officer, for example, or Egyptian, depending on the border, and a UN guy. And it's, you know, two out of three, get it? And so the Israeli guy tines his evidence, and the Jordanian guy tines his evidence, and the UN guy gives the final psaq. And then the United Nations condemns either this side or that side. That's how the whole system went from uh, 48 to 67. You know, that was the Israel before the, the Six-Day War. Those people want to go back to um, those borders, think that everything was peaceful before 67, but they just don't know the history. And um, we used to be all these UN guys who were number three. Could be American officers. I remember this guy, Elmo Hutchinson. And there was a... I was a candidate. And uh, the Jordanian commander, Glob Pasha, wrote a book. And there was Major Van Horn, I think his name was, from the Swedish. There was General Oddbull from the Norwegians. And they wrote those books, very anti-Israel. But at least it gave me a perspective. You know, not just you hear the Zionist propaganda all the time. You hear the other side as well. Which there are two sides. And uh, this is the old Israel I'm talking about. Where, you know, Yerushalayim was split half and half. And they used to shoot each other from time to time. Uh, so notice you could be walking around and, a, and a, an Arab and the Jordanians could shoot from the walls and hit somebody in the old city. Get it? I mean, this, this is just how it went. That was how life was lived. Uh, in 56, uh, there was a famous case where a Jordanian soldier, not under orders, just lost it and started shooting at Ramat Rachel. Remember that? Uh, you know what that is. That was the border... It was like a bunch of archaeologists there or something like that. And it just killed a whole bunch of Israelis. And Israel at that time said, if this ever happens again, we're going to war with Jordan. We're going to conquer the West Bank. You know, so the Jordanians got scared and they, uh, what's the right word, clamped down on that sort of thing. But it was a crazy world at that time. In all of this, 
Now, again, I'm talking about Israel before 67. So if you know the map, or you can Google in a second, you know the state of Israel before 67 had a funny look. You had the Galil upstairs, you had the Negev downstairs, and in between you had the coastal strip. So Israel had the coast. A narrow strip, very narrow. So it's, you know, to use general language from Tel Aviv to Haifa, or to be more accurate, from the Gaza border, Gaza border up to, uh, you know, Rosh Hashanikra. <coughs> that was the state of Israel, plus a finger sticking out to Yushalayim. So if you look at the old map, you see it's the Galil up north, it's the Negev in the south, it's the coastal strip, and there's a finger sticking, you know, so more or less like from Tel Aviv or something like that to Yushalayim. It's a narrow corridor. And that was Israeli territory. So it means if you wanted to go from uh, Tel Aviv or anywhere else to Yerushalayim, you had to go on that road. Those who are in that yeshiva now, uh, where my son, what's called OJ, wherever it was located a couple years ago, they, that's the road that you see, the Burma Road that Israel built in 48. Uh, that's how you went to Yerushalayim. The, obviously, half the city of Jerusalem, the old western half of Yerushalayim. So the Belzerov used to live in Tel Aviv, but in the hot months of the summer, you go to Yerushalayim, it's cooler, as I recall. And when he went once in the 50s, and I only noticed from reading this Swedish guy, General von Horn, Major Colonel von Horn, and he said he was with the Jordanians, and they like panicked, because there's an Israeli attack about to happen, a surprise attack in the old city. They started mo mobilizing the army. Why? Because they saw a belt of cars driving on this road towards Yerushalayim, and it looked like a military convoy, and it's a surprise attack, <laughs> like that. And all hell could have broken loose. You could have had the, you could have had the, the 67 war in 57, <laughs> you see? And, but the end, it turned out it was just a mistake. It was just the bells of rub driving Yerushalayim, and all of his followers, the Hasidim, whatever, got in cabs and followed him in, in cars and buses. So you had a caravan, a long caravan, following the Rebbe to go to Yerushalayim, for the Jordanian point of view, it looked like a, an attack. <clears throat> you see, this is the crazy world of yesteryear. Of course, he passed away in '57, but I'm just saying, it's the crazy world of yesteryear. <clears throat> now, here's the interesting part from this article that this um, essay I read in the Gedolim book, uh, because he's talking about the fact, that, as I said before, the Rebbe, who prior to the war had been very anti-Zionist. Extremely. Just like all... In other words, there wasn't much of a difference between him and Satmar. If you go back in the 20s and 30s, and Bells anyway was always very militant, and his father and grandfather were stark um, anti-Zionists, um, as you'd imagine. Uh, and, I mean, really, so... And then Rabban was, was was not not after he came to Israel. He certainly wasn't a Zionist, obviously. Uh, but he certainly didn't approve anything not from... But like I said before, the attitude was a different one. So I'm reading through and I see in a very interesting part of here on page 546 in the book. And he said, and this is from a Belzer uh, source, not from some Israeli source, from um, Nelson Ortner, who was a big Belzer, you know, uh, what's the right word? Biographer. It's an in-house. And he says, Kishigia Kanarava Kodesh me Bells, Slusi Yagalina Tel Aviv, when the Belzer arrived, in Tel Aviv, this would be in 44. So the war was going on. So no, let's put it this way. Now, for the first time, he actually came to the reality of the modern state of Israel. Now, it's not, not, it's not the modern state of Israel. It's four years before. 
So, um, to tell you the truth, these are the peak years of Chilonius. Okay? Uh, people don't realize that Israel's had a strange history in the following respect. <clears throat> Prior to 1948, you couldn't get into Palestine. Only a limited amount of certificates, as I said before, were available each year. And 99% of them were not a good, you know what I mean? 99% were Zionist. And the overwhelming majority of the people that they would allow in were secular, because that's what they wanted. So if you're talking about the 1920s, 1930s, and, and, and 40s and so forth, if you wanted to get in legally into Palestine, the best thing for you was to be an active member of some secular Zionist group. Um, totally not religious. That's Gavaldic. Because you come in and you work in a moshav or a kibbutz or even not. But you'll be a modern, non-religious Jew, but nationalist Jew. But the very fact you're moving to a Hebrew-speaking yeshuv in Palestine shows who you are. And so the result was that you had what I always call the Gucci Aliyah, which means you had a highly skewed uh, population profile. The uh, great majority of the Jews living in Palestine under the British were not from. But that's due to artificial means. Because they only would allow a non from. Now, the Mizrahi, the religious Zionists, got in a certain amount, a minority amount. They could have got like nothing, hardly. And, you know, that's how it went. So the overwhelming majority of people who were allowed in were, like I say, Gucci, custom-tailored. There should be non from. Okay? The attitude being, if you get the from in there, they're not going to work, they're not going to want to sit and learn, and then, you know, they're not going to... They'll be anti-Zionist, they'll be connected to us. We need every Jew who comes in here should be for us. And so you had a highly artificial um, population situation in the 1920s and especially the 30s and 40s, right, without going into too many details. So I would say that the 40s, prior to 1948, were like the peak years of the secular character of uh, Israel. People don't know this because it all starts to change radically after 48 and 49. Once Israel became a state, for their own reasons, they said like this, we want all Jews here, we need as many bodies as we can get. And as you know, they took in all the Sephardim, and even the uh, the Haredim, whoever wanted to go. Ad Hayom Azev, you're Jewish and you want to be part of Israel, you're an instant citizen, you know. Israel's not the only country that has that law, by the way. There are many countries, this is surprise people, that say if you're a member of that ethnic group, you can become an instant citizen. Japan is one that comes to mind, but there are others. <coughs> Now, uh, once that happened, that radically changed the demography. So notice, if you're Ben-Gurion, you say, yes, until 1948, Ruba de Ruba was like me. But after 1948, yes, a certain amount are coming in that are Chilonim and not from like me and so on and so forth. But there's a belt of uh, Jews from Yemen, from Morocco, from Iraq and so forth. And they're from, or very traditional as we know. You understand? Know, no, it's as, as we all know, the Sephardim, you don't talk about, right? So even if they end up being brainwashed in the Israeli school system, you know, to give up Yiddishkeit, but they don't really. You see, they don't really. Uh, ruba de Ruba. And so the Israeli profile started to radically change after 48. Um, believe you me, the real Chilim, you know, bitterly resent this, but there you are. 
And today it's a nightmare for them because the, the, the Haredim have grown and grown and grown because they have many more children. So I'm only saying this to situate what I'm about to tell you. Um, and again, today I'm just uh, giving like a, a sort of a historical ramble, but it's direct in a certain way. And so I'm reading over here, and he says like this, Kishegiyakan and the Rabbi Kaddish, the bells, Schusi Yogel in Tel Aviv, when the bells Rebbe showed up and seized Tel Aviv in 1944, as they say, the peak of the Chil Niyud, Omar, he said, Sharimu Osanu, that we were deceived. In other words, the from Jews, like the Torkart or whatever, who wrote to us back in the 20s and the 30s, and so forth, describing the Matzav and Eretz Yisrael, they deceived us. Because they wrote all these dramatic letters and journalism and things like this that is unbelievably bad here in Eretz Yisrael. And so the impression that the Rebbe's got, this is what he's saying, and the you know Hasidic Jews and ultra-Orthodox Jews in general got was, in Israel, it's like living under the Inquisition. If you want to be from, they'll kill you. That you can't keep kosher, you can't keep Shabbos. It wasn't like that. So I'll read it again. Right? They said that the situation is geferlich, oyim venora, as far as Yiddishkeit is concerned. And that's why we, the Rebbes, did not advise people to try to get into Palestine in the 20s and the 30s, which they would have saved them from the war. Um, from Hitler. Ach but now that I'm here, Roashiishkan Talmuturis Vishivas. I see it's not like that. Now he understood obviously, as I just described to you before, that because of the politics and the nature of the Aliyah, the majority of the Jews are not from and so on and so forth. But you can be from the, they don't kill you if you keep Shabbos. They don't stop you from keeping kosher. They they don't stop you from setting up yeshivas and from schools. Talmud Torah's yeshivas as he calls it. You understand? So in other words, what he was saying was like this: the overblown rhetoric, which is characteristic of the from journalism, right? The overblown rhetoric um, had a terrible consequence because it it made us understand the situation was if I'm sending somebody to move to Palestine, it's E. Efsher for him to Yeshua Shabbos. I mean that literally. You said it's E. Efsher. It's like moving to a terrorism. You know, that if you come there, when you get off the ship, they make you right then and there. They force you to be Machal Shabbos, all the rest of it, which wasn't true. Sha'ala was a gone, Rabshua Mendel Ehrenberg. And I'm just reading what it says here in this uh, in this article, which, which is ultimately from the... Um, from, uh, what do you call it? Uh, a Belzer Safer from a Bikidusha social iron, it's called. And in another place also. So, the Belzer Rub was asked by Yeshua Mendel Ehrenberg. Now, Rabbi Ehrenberg, if anybody remembers him, an interesting guy. He was a Belzer Chassid, I guess, a Galtzianer, who also escaped to Hungary. I don't know how. He escaped to Hungary in the middle of the war. And, because Galitzi was a German army, you know. And he got out on the Kessner train. Isn't that interesting? He survived when he got out on the Kessner train. And he ended up coming there to Israel. And he became the head Dayan in Tel Aviv for the Rabbanut. Notice he was a Bucky in, in Agunas and Gittin and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you can imagine a city like Tel Aviv Yaffa with hundreds of thousands of Jews. 
and the 40s and 50s and 60s and all that, and the Shilas, even today, but I'm saying especially at that time after the war, so they needed somebody who was a super uh, post-sick, and he was. But he was a follower of Belzer Rebbe. So he says, Shalom Shu Mendel Ehrenberg, so Rebbe Ehrenberg asked the Belzerov, I guess he met him after the war in, in the 40s, and remember, these are two people who who survived the war. Uh, in the case of the Belzerov's family didn't survive the war, I think Rebbe Ehrenberg did, I don't remember, uh, the family, it doesn't matter. Umahi Marucha Kodesh Eishatzadikim. So how'd the Rebbe's get it all wrong? What about the fact that it's supposed to have Ruch HaKodesh? You understand? What is supposed to have Ruch HaKodesh? And Omer and the Bells of the Rebbe told him, Kim Shoy Gzeira, Niskayim HaKasev, Avdu Chacham HaSchacham, Abbin Lesnevonu Tzistajar. Which is amazing. He's saying that since the, the Holocaust was Gzeira Min HaShamayim, so, um, we were dumb. In other words, this was a divine punishment. Uh, the the Rambam, I think it's in Hilchus Chuba. You can, I believe, he quotes this very pasuk. Uh, and I'm mentioning this only because now we're in the middle of uh, re- reading, um, you know, in the in the Torah. Shmos ve'er bo b'shalach. This week is supposed to be b'shalach. This is the famous story of Mitzrayim. The Shibbat Mitzrayim. How do we understand from the firm perspective, uh, you know, uh, the God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and the Aksha slave Paro. See, you know, it's a classic thing. And the Rambam very famously says that uh, the hardening of the heart is Xer Minishmayim. You get it? The hardening of the heart is Xer Minishmayim. Uh, isn't it Hilchis Chuba <coughs> that the Rambam says, Dos that, you know, Hashmain leave home as that sometimes Hashem punishes the door by making a failure of leadership. So in other words, leaders who ordinarily would get it right, but it's minish, you know, God makes it that they get it wrong. Of the Chachmas Chachamov. That is exact, that's divinely ordained. Ubinas Navon of Tistatar. And the Rebbe said, that's what happened. We got it wrong. Uh, which is interesting because, you know, uh, it's very different than Rav Dessler or something like that. And uh, it's, it's, but it's a classic. In other words, that can sometimes, let me put it this way. That's a passing Yeshayahu. And what does Yeshayahu say? I'm going by heart over here. He says, if you do mitzvah sanoshim lumodov, then I'll give you a punishment. Isn't that how it goes? I'll give you a terrible punishment. The punishment means that the leaders will get it wrong. A community is depending on the leaders. If you're Hasidic especially, you're depending on the leaders. You're hoping the leaders will get it right. You hope the leaders get siyat deshmaya. Sometimes it's the reverse of siyat deshmaya. It's minashmaya that they get it wrong. Right? Which which means he wasn't worried about saying made a mistake. He's saying clearly this was this was a mistake and it happened. Uh and it was a terrible mistake. Six million people got killed. Which is why I guess he was in shock, as I said before. It says just beyond it's Xera beyond the regular Gezera already. Uh, I thought that was just very interesting. Right? I think there's a it's a it's an interesting uh, take because um it seems to indicate that uh, part of the reason that this mistake was made, again, it's all Minas was that the information that they got at that, remember, there was no uh, um, TV, movies, not really, and um, what's the right word, internet, so you can know, like we know today, what's going on in Israel. And even today, you know, sometimes it's confusing, like you see in the Walder business, you know, so it's confusing. But after a while, the MS comes out. So you live in the age of internet. 
But I'm talking about the 1920s and the 1930s. So there was no internet. And uh, if you're a Rebbe or something like this, I mean, you're getting information from whatever source you get information from, from sources. And in Israel, it seems to be Rimuosi. They deceived us. In other words, they, they, the rhetoric was overblown. Of course, it was terrible that they're setting up a whole non-from business in Israel. And it was Api Korsish and all the rest of it. Grant, you know, that's true. But it was not true that it was impossible for a Jew to live a from life in Israel if that's what he chose to do. And I'll go even farther than that. When Israel actually became a state, so um, it's funny. There was a racism and Ben-Gurion governments I'm talking about. And they didn't hesitate to try to unfrum the Sephardim because they considered the Sephardim like inferior. So you could do with them whatever you want. So they Taka cut off the pays and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but they didn't bother the Ashkenazim, not to the best of my knowledge. So let's say, for example, it's 1948, 49, 50, whatever. And let's say, you're, I'm just making this up, you're a Holocaust survivor, you're a Chassid. He moved there to Israel. There was no attempt, since you're Ashkenaz, Yiddish speaking, there was no attempt to say, stop being from or something like that. You understand? You'll find your own framework in B'nai Brock or Yushalayim, wherever it is, if that's what you want to do. And you'll, you know, you'll find your situation that way. Now, if you're a Yemenite or a Moroccan, then the Zionists might screw you over. That really did happen. But if you're Hasidish or Bells or something like that, it didn't really happen that way. So in other words, as we know from today, a person could, if that's what he wished to do, make Aliyah if you could get in and be totally from. You know, it could be a good up. There are people, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You could have a base Yaakov. Uh... Maybe the government won't give you the money for it, but you know, you, 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 there, it's not an inquisition in which they're persecuting the Jewish region. And it sounds like had he, now I'm just going to talk about Levarin over here, had he known that, this is what he's saying in this paragraph. I want to repeat this. I got from, uh, it's not a question getting from this historian, the sources, the Belzer sources. You understand? He said, if they would have seen, you know, that it's, it's totally possible, even in Tel Aviv, because what did he do? He lived in Tel Aviv. He set up a cheder there, and then eventually yeshiva. You know, Bell's is now a gigantic operation, as you know very well. Uh, his nephew is the one who survived. The word brother got remarried and had a child. That's what happened. And then the brother died in '49. It's a complicated story, but um, it's it, it's possible to build up Torah in Israel. <laughs> I think it's uh, silly for me even to you know to raise the question over there. So um, this is all these coincidences resulted in this talk that I've given today, as I said before, it's, uh, it ties together many strands, especially for the sponsors for in honor of Judy and Herschel Goldman, uh, whose upcoming 70th anniversary it is. They'll hopefully find it uh, interesting. And I think it gives an angle, a spin, especially since this week, as I said before, for those who keep these things, is the week that they skipped talking because this week is, I guess, when the Belzerabe got out of Hungary and escaped Hitler. Um... You know, back in almost, gee, it's almost 80 years ago. Almost 80 years ago. So with that, I'll close this down. And uh, I wish you all a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com dot rabbi david